Over the last two decades, I've been in an insatiable quest to learn everything I can about leadership. What makes the best leaders so good? After running companies small and large over the last 20 years, today, I speak on stages all across the world to audiences who are interested in that same question. My name's John Laredo. I'm your host, and I invite you to join me on this journey as we explore this very topic and what makes the best leader so good. Welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. Hey there, Tomorrow's Leaders. So this guy is a blast from my past. He is an, an absolute legend in financial services. Don Connolly, I met him recently when I was doing a keynote in Pinehurst. And he came up to me, introduced himself. I'm like, wait a sec, the Don Connolly, the guy who I listened to in back when I was a brand new advisor and I used to listen to your audio uh, tapes back then, tapes, and uh, he was just masterful and uh, is masterful and taught me so much about the business. So I was super excited not only to meet him, but right away I'm like, okay, you're going to do a podcast with me. So you're in for a treat. Here is Don Connolly. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things leader-related, related to leading yourself and leading others. I'm John Laredo, your host, and I have a guest on this show that I'm incredibly excited to share with you. This is a guy that's impacted me personally for 25 or 30 years. Those in the financial services know this guy just by name. I don't even have to do an intro, but this is the one and only Don Connolly. Don, welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. Thank you, John. Good to be here. <laughs> so, Don, you have been a uh, just an industry shaper and uh, just an influencer. And again, I, you know, I, I, I've told the story to many people because I've connected with you recently that as a new advisor in financial services back in the in the 90s, I listened to Don Connolly tapes and listened to your messages. And you had such an amazing impact on me a guy new in the business that didn't really know much about financial services and especially not about helping influence people to make the right decisions. And you helped dramatically. So first of all, let me say thank you on behalf of me and you know the thousands and thousands of other people you've helped, I'm sure as thank well. Thank you. Um, it seems like you got a lot of, you have a lot of fun doing what you're doing. You've been doing it now 45 plus years. 53 years. 53 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as I, I, I kiddingly say, I'm not, goal, retirement's not my goal. As long as I have my health, I'm in my in my mid seventies. I'm just going to keep on working as long because I love what I do. Yeah. Well, I t so tell tell the audience a little bit about how you got into this because I kind of found it interesting. You and I were talking at Pinehurst, and you were sharing the story because you have such a unique role. You've been with Putnam, I know. That's where you kind of, I believe, not not started your career, but that's where you became real well known. How did you get started doing these tapes and kind of getting the messages out there? What happened? Well, I started out as an advisor. I was with E.F. Hutton for years. Then I became a branch manager for a competitive firm in Boston. And then I became the national sales manager for a small, it used to be a small mutual fund company. Today it's Columbia Threadneedle, part of it. It used to be Colonial Funds, which were around back in the uh, mid to late 80s. And when I got to Colonial, I had, I had wholesalers working for me. And they were from spread out from Maine to California. It was hard to get, we couldn't get them together. It's impractical. So I started doing as you remember, cassette tapes. And I would do a tape a quarter and send it out to the wholesalers. Really sales ideas and ideas I'd picked up from financial advisors I was talking to during the quarter. And one day um, I went to Putnam in 1988. 
much larger firm, $450 billion company. And we did the same thing, but we began sending them out to advisors. So we literally, John, sent out, I think, eight or nine tapes to advisors we knew. And within the year, they became 35,000 tapes a quarter. Wow. Because of the appeal. It's not me. It was the, it was the, it was the subject matter. Mm-hmm. We all light our candle from somebody. I had a mentor. I had three mentors, actually. But my first, my, my greatest mentor told me, people looking to become, well, in my case, clients of a financial advisor, but buying anything from anybody, they're not really looking for information. They're looking for someone they can trust. And that became the gist of these tapes. It's not what you know, it's who you are. And people are, you know, client prospects are scorekeepers. They're looking at you. They're, they're focused on your authenticity. And if they're going to do business, three, and I was I'd lucky enough to figure, not to figure it out. I was taught this early in my career. If I'm going to do business with you, you have to like me, trust me, think I'm smart. There's nothing else. Doesn't matter if I'm a rookie or a veteran, tall or short, doesn't matter. You don't do business with people you don't like. You don't do business with people you don't trust. So that was became my focus. I think the average advisor, I don't want to ramble, the average advisor focuses on product knowledge. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you how many moving parts in a, in a, in a managed money account or in an ETF. Yeah. People don't care. If you find, so an advisor uses BlackRock or Templeton, no one cares. Yeah. They, they care about the relationship. Yeah. They care more about the relationship than the products. Yeah. So in answer to your question, my mentor taught me that right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So what I teach now, 50 some years later, is everything you need to know, but you weren't taught in training. Well, it, it's, it's, it's timeless. It hasn't changed in 53 years. Yeah. I mean, and and you bring up such great points because I remember, and, and I've seen this for years and years, to your point, you know, there's a lot of advisors and this isn't just financial services. This is any industry that they there's the temptation to just want to show your knowledge and you share, you know, talk real high level and all this kind of stuff to impress people. And you really don't. And ultimately people don't do anything because they don't understand it's too complicated. What I found amazing was you took this really complicated business. Financial services is incredibly complicated. As coming into the business, as an advisor, I was confused. But you made it, you helped people with the language of making something that's complex into this simple, easy to understand concept or concepts. And that seemed like the magic for working with clients, right? You could take something that people didn't understand, use an analogy or a story, make it something that makes sense. I mean, how important is that in, in that role of the advisor or any kind of influence? People don't buy what they don't understand. Yeah. And yeah. we talk our own, there's a great book called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. How do you make your ideas stick? And uh, it's, they use the um, an acronym success without the second S, S-U-C-C-E-S-S. Your ideas have to be simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional stories. And stories are... are I, I forget her name. Oh, I'm so sorry. It escapes. She's great. She said stories are, are, are data with soul. <laughs> yeah. We're adding some soul to the data. Yeah. So all I did, all I do, John, is take the facts and figures and transform it into a language people understand. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have God gave me a gift as a storyteller, so I use analogies and tell stories. Yeah. And and you and you do a phenomenal job of that. It's interesting because you know I see people that struggle with uh, influencing people. So. You know, you, you look at clients that make bad decisions during bad markets or whatnot, or short-term, long-term decisions based on short-term stuff. And ultimately, the advisor's role is to change that client's mindset or perception and view it from a different perspective. I mean, everybody's got all these biases and cognitive biases. Um, 
what is this may be a tough question, but what have you learned as you've gone? I mean, you've spent so much time in this industry. I mean, is it the same now as it was in terms of how you talk to people as it was 20, 30 you know, years it's ago? Funny. In the, like, Justin Trudeau in like, 2018 in Davos said, things have never changed so fast and they'll never change so slow again. It was a great quote. In my 53 years, everything has changed. Landscape changes daily. Two things have never changed. And I learned to focus on what doesn't change. If we focus on what changes, John, it's going to change our map. We're going to get so much input during the day, it's going to influence our thinking. So I try to focus on things that don't change. In my business, financial services, the one thing that never changes, first of all, is mom and dad always have goals. Whether the market's high or low, inflation's high or low, no matter who's in the White House, no matter what a barrel of oil costs. And American goals, by the way, are very simple. Americans want to do three things. They want to educate their kids, pay their taxes, and retire. That's true of you and me. That's true of Elon Musk. We just want to leave our kids better off than we were and retire comfortably. And that's never going to change. Since 1900, we've had 20 presidents, 12 uh, Republicans, eight Democrats. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. That's what policy is. So I always focus on mom and dad's goals. I try to keep them focused, keep them focused on their goals. The other thing that never changes, Joe, we're going to make a living. (laughs) We can't wait for the market to come our way. So I, I try to urge people, go in the morning and put on your figurative blinders, focus on your client goals. Everything else is white noise and don't listen to the white noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Easier said than done. It takes discipline, but that's well, what it's about. It does, you know, and and I, I one of the things that I know I'm I'm uh, asked a lot by business owners, and again, that not even just in financial services, but how do they scale and build a business? You know, you're you're talking about a business that's really dependent on spending time with clients and giving advice, and there's only so much of you to go around. And there's a lot of people, though, that want to create more impact and have more influence, whether it's more influence on a smaller group of people or they want to have larger influence on a larger group of people. What's your advice to that person that might have kind of hit that ceiling of complexity in their business? They're really not growing that much. I mean, you work with advisors and have seen the best of the best. What's your advice on what they need to do? Literally, it's check your ego at the door and go ask for help. There's always somebody doing better than you or me, right? So let's go find out what the big person's doing. My, I have a friend named Dave Hubbard, who's a very bright man. He's a, a coach and an advisor as well. But he said, John, when I meet somebody who's either failing or, be, or very successful, I can figure out why with one question. What are you doing during the day? And the answer is, pro, the, the difference is profound. Yeah. The person that's failing is getting ready to get ready. The person that's succeeding is totally engaged. In our industry, financial services, it's knee to knee. We're like doctors. We're not talking to patients who are unemployed. Mm-hmm. So that's what I tell people. You know, you, like I per a la Dave Harbour, I try to divide advisors' careers into thirds. First third's building a business, which is what you're talking about. Then there's, okay, my business is big enough. Finally, I'm going to sell my business. Each phase has a, what Dave calls the most valuable activity. If you are building a business, I don't care, a shoe store or financial advisor or doctor, your most important project is prospecting. Is getting, it doesn't matter how many people you know. It's how many people know you. How do you get your name out? How do you brand yourself? That's a whole topic for a different day. If your business is big enough, you say, okay, fine. Now my priority is customer service. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give Ritz-Carlton service. If we're retiring, it's transition. But it's focusing on what's important. There's so much to do running a business that gets our eye off the ball. We got to, you know, Eisenhower, the Eisenhower box. I remember, I'm sure you remember, urgent, important, important, not urgent, the other four. Mm-hmm. Eisenhower came up with that during the war. 
He said, every time I get a phone call, it's urgent to somebody else, unimportant to me. So I try to focus on what's both urgent and important. Mm-hmm. And in the case of a business owner, we're never taught how to run a business. Merrill Lynch, no one teaches that. Mm-hmm. Kind of left to our own devices. And a lot of us aren't business people. That's what the E-Myth is all about, Michael Gerber's book. Mm-hmm. E-Myth Revisited. But we, we, piano tuners can tune piano. It doesn't mean they can run a business. Mm-hmm. So you either got to hire those skills or learn those skills. Mm-hmm. And now my suggestion, as I said in the beginning, find out who's doing it right and go ask them how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, I know people uh, deal with a big challenge is just the fact that their temptation is as their business grows, they've got more and more responsibilities, more and more decisions, more people, more services, more time, everything, just their plate gets overloaded and they keep taking on more and more stuff, which ultimately clogs their business. Um, how, how does somebody like that handle it? I mean, you've got a lot of people out there that are kind of running their business, either just themselves or maybe one other person helping them out a little bit. Uh, when is the time where you've got to just, you got to give up some control in order to grow? And how do you, how do you get question. comfortable with that if you're not comfortable with it? Well, the reality is running the business gets in the way of growing the business. I don't care who you are. You can't do both. No, and I'll tell you as a financial advisor, I had a friend tell me, and I don't want to talk just to our industry, but he said, when I was earning in fees, $250,000 a year, I didn't need any help. I was fine. Once I get up to 250, I needed an assistant. Now he's a very successful guy. So once I began earning close to a million dollars in fees, I had to make a decision. I either got to grow the business or run the business. In his case, my friend's case, he's affable. He's loquacious. He's, he's a party guy, not a party guy. He's good in crowds. He's a golfer. He hired someone to come in and run his business. And he went on just brought in new business. I think we have to, it has to be a Mr. Miss inside, Mr. Miss outside. Yeah. So do you know when that time is? I mean, does, does that kind of smack you in the face and you, you are clear on that or are you, do you need to think ahead and plan? Do you need to add that extra person before you're necessarily ready for it so they help you grow or are you responding yeah, to? Yeah. I'm not smart enough to think ahead. <laughs> I, I, I know when I run into a brick wall. Yeah. Is I, know, I know intuitively I'm not paid to do $15 an hour paperwork. And that's mm-hmm. what the small business owner does. Mm-hmm. There was, remember the great ad a few years ago, TV ad? May I speak to the president, please? Speaking. May I speak to the head of marketing, please? Speaking. Right. <laughs> I speak to your best sales agent. Speaking. <laughs> it's that. Yeah. You just figure out, man, this is not what I'm paid to do. If you if you look at the hours you sp- you your audience, look at the hours they spend with people, they make they make their money face to face. They work 80 hours a week, they're earning maybe $50 an hour. If they actually take the actual time they're together with clients or prospects, probably close to a thousand dollars an hour. Yeah. Well, figure it out. <laughs> yeah. You gotta be face to face, and you can't do both. So you you know when you get when you when you just when you as you said hit the wall or you in a minute hit the wall. Yeah, you're working hard, but you're not going anywhere. So you talk a lot about uh, building trust and how important that is. Obviously, what are some of the things that people do that they don't even realize is breaking the trust? Things that's, that they, you know, that's yeah. good. Trust is first of all, trust is nonlinear. It's irrational. Uh, and I, imagine a fireman in your, excuse me, a single young single mother in your town. She's walking down the street and she's holding an infant and she has to tie her shoe. She's not going to hand the baby to a stranger, but she would hand the baby to a fireman. And she asked her why. And she said, well, I trust firemen. Why? Well, I, I don't know. I just trust firemen. That's the nonlinear dynamic of trust. It's irrational. Why do we trust firemen? Well, the reality is every story we've ever read about a fireman is, is a hero story. They run to a danger. They're there at Christmas time for orphans and kids. Firemen are early our heroes. But most of us don't have that kind of publicity. So we've got to build up trust slowly. We have to break down that wall. And 
I'll tell you an interesting story, if I may. The New York Times did a survey with, with um, NBC. And they, they asked the, survey, the per, per person in the street, of all the people in America, what percentage are trustworthy? Oh, less than 30%. Well, what about your family and friends? What percent are trustworthy? <laughs> oh, more than 70%. Well, that's mathematically impossible. <laughs> but the, the, the moral of the story is, if I think I know you, John, I'm going to give you twice as much credit for being trustworthy as if I thought you were a stranger. Mm-hmm. So I'd start to trust you. And what we do to break that trust is dumb. That we overpromise. You know, if you, you, you casually say, you know, Don, I'll call you this week. And you don't, no big deal. It's a big deal because you failed to keep a promise. Mm-hmm. And lack of communication is a way to destroy trust. Um, I just, I just, all trust really is, is me, not, me being able to predict, John, what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. If I can predict that John Lorito is going to do the right thing, I'll trust you. Mm-hmm. Now, the, there's an accelerator, which is empathy. If we empathize, we build trust faster. Mm-hmm. But I heard, um, I think it was Bob Dunwoody said, it great, great analogy. It takes maybe two years to build a building in New York City, a year and a half. It takes 10 seconds to implode it with dynamite. Mm-hmm. That's trust. Yeah. One simple slip. It's lying. And trust is more than, it, it, it's also doing the job the right way going the extra mile, really pouring your heart and soul into it. It's not just lying. Lying's part of it. Mm-hmm. But it's not It's not performing up to snuff, phoning it in. Yeah. People start to distrust you a little bit. So so let me ask you, which is, I know, a very, very common question and a, and a big-time challenge for people that are now in this last couple of years have dealt with not being able to be in person with people. They're maybe need, meeting new clients or prospects for the first time like this. That's a whole different way and, and requires a lot different skill sets and things to build trust. I mean, what's what does somebody like that do? And maybe it's a leader. I was talking to a CEO at took over a company that's a global company, and he's trying to work with people that he's never met before and probably won't for some time. I mean, whether it's a leader or a salesperson or a financial advisor, how do they build trust in a virtual world like this? Well, yeah, I heard a great analogy. So if you look at a tree, literally a, a large, majestic tree, you can see the width, you can see the height, and you can walk around and feel the majesty. If you look at a picture of a tree, you don't have that same impact. Mm-hmm. And they're not looking at John Lorito on a Zoom call, looking at a picture of John Lorito. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's different. So one way, as I said before, is empathy. I think if people say, you know what, John Lorito understands me, he gets me, it builds trust a little bit faster. Yeah. So, but it's just consistency over time, time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. So I, it's, it's patience. It's doing the what you're supposed to do all the time. It's, it's slow and steady wins the race, mm-hmm. and it's 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 harder virtually than it is in in person. There's no body language, there's no eye contact. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you know, where I look. Where do I look here? That stuff is not conducive to building trust. Mm-hmm. But when I started 53 years ago, I cold called. That's building trust virtually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, and you're right, you're absolutely right. The virtual world existed and it's just looks different now, but it would still existed back, you know, decades ago. Um, You said something that's interesting and that's the whole concept of doing what you say and not over promising and under delivering. Is there a way to just, I mean, I I know that, and I'm with you a hundred percent because if somebody tells me they're going to call me on a certain day or whatever, even if it's a little under the breath comment, I remember it. And I remember if they don't, I notice it. I may not remember it on that day, but there's some point it pops in my head and I say, geez, you know, that was, that was, that was a letdown. Uh, Is there, 
it, does it work the other way? I mean, is it almost to your advantage to to try to throw some things out there just for the purpose? You know, I'll give you a quick story real quick. And I just, I remember this vividly when I was a kid and I was probably, I don't know, I'm going to say maybe 11, 12 years old. And I remember it was a Saturday morning and my, my, my parents got a call, the phone rang and my dad said, you know, I wonder if that's so-and-so or the realtor was exactly 10 o'clock in the morning. He picked up the phone. It was, he hung up the phone. He says, we're going to work with that realtor. And yeah. he said, because that realtor, I asked Tuesday, I said, call me at 10 a.m. on Saturday. And she called exactly at 10 a.m. And because of that, I know what type of person she is. Now, I don't know if she intended, you know, hey, I'm going to make sure I'm right on the button. But is there, you know, is there a lot of sense in that? Like, hey, let me kind of throw something out there. Hey, I'll call you Tuesday at 7. And just sure, to why be, not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. You know, how often, you know, the old saying is the sale begins after the sale. We have a relationship. We form a relationship. We sell what we're trying to sell ourselves, our ideas, our products. Then we turn our backs on people. Yeah, that that is bad. It's yeah. staying in touch. It's just lack of communication kills really it kills marriages. It kills business relationships. Mm-hmm. So communicate, communicate, communicate. Be dependable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 focus on your added value, not your basic value. So let's talk about influence because that's that's fascinating to me and that's leadership. I mean, how you influence people to do things they might not have otherwise done without your help. And sometimes that's stepping into discomfort. It's stepping outside their comfort zone. It's going down a new path. Um, share a little bit about just your perspectives on what makes somebody more influential and and you know, what what's that all about? Well, one, one word comes to mind immediately. That's charisma. So let's talk about two things. Uh, Aristotle is the father of persuasion. Remember, pathos, ethos, logos. Mm-hmm. If you want to be persuasive, first of all, you must establish a personal and moral, moral credibility. Secondly, you must use strong rhetoric. And thirdly, you must get arouse the emotions in others. That's persuasion. You establish your credibility, your very strong rhetoric, and you're persuasive. When I see true leaders generally they're good storytellers and good and, and charismatic charismatic you know, there's an argument can charisma can charisma be taught and john antonakis at the time he was at harvard i'm not sure where he is now but wrote an article actually turned into a book yes you can teach charisma and uh there's a book and i forget the author's name now author s's name but antonakis said there were 12 charisma learning tactics three are nonverbal, nine are verbal i don't know you may not too young to remember but ronald reagan Rhetorical questions are very, very powerful. Reagan won an election. He was losing the day before. He said, before you go to bed tonight, ask yourself one question. Am I better off than I was four years ago? (laughs) Won the election. It's so charismatic. John Kennedy said, that's not what your country can do for you. Mm -hmm. Ask what you can do for your country. (laughs) So learning, I used to say to people as a financial advisor, it's not my job to make you rich. My job to keep you from being poor. Well, that really resonates, John. That's true. It's believable. It's charismatic. Yeah. People want to follow a leader. You come with me. I'll make sure you end up a poor. Yeah. So, yeah, it's charisma, storytelling, personal attraction. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you on questions, and I love that. I'm a big Ronald Reagan fan. Uh, what are, What are some of the questions that you think get people either thinking differently? What are some of the questions you've heard advisors ask that are powerful? you know, thought-provoking, behavior-changing questions? I'll tell you probably the greatest I've ever heard. It's a friend of mine who's a very, very, one of 
one of the he's probably in the top 10 in the United States for, for assets under management. He's, he's just an incredible person. And he says, when most people talk about the process, the investments, the results, I focus on a person's hopes and visions and dreams. So he says, when people come to see him, what brought you to see me today? Why are you here? And he's in, 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 uh, in, in Cleveland. People say, well, what, is your, what is your personal financial vision? Well, my vision, our vision is at age 65, a home in Ohio fully paid for, condominium in Tampa fully paid for, our kids educated and enough money in the bank to live comfortably. And he simply asks, if I can make your vision come true, can we do business? How powerful is that? What's the answer to that question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other questions that I really like, I've, I ask people, what's the do you ever save for something really important? Do you ever save for something you really wanted to get and you got it? How did that make you feel? Because that's what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. You know, in our business, you understand called temporal myopia, not in my business, temporal myopia. We can't see down the road. So to say to somebody your age, well, John, when you're 65, well, you can no more imagine that than jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge. We've got to put it in modern day terms. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I try to do. I say, what's, what's the one, if you ever saved for something really important and did it, how'd you feel about that? What's the best investment you've ever made? Mm. How do you want to be remembered? When you're gone, what do you want your wife and your kids to think about you? What do you want your legacy to be? John, decisions are emotional. They're not objective. We're objective because we're financial advisors. We think in terms of numbers. Clients don't live in our world. They live in a world of bias and emotion. Mm -hmm. They tell stories and respond to stories. Mm -hmm. So to say to somebody, you know, we should get a portfolio that's well diversified with a 0.9 beta is one thing. How do you want your kids to remember you as something totally different? Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, that's the differentiator. Most people are not asking questions and they're certainly not asking powerful questions like that. You know, I mean, I, I, I know many advisors that still spend the first 20, 30 minutes just talking and not listening, not asking questions. And I, you know, honestly, I was trained that way back in 94. I mean, we learned a script verbatim that was like 13 pages and I'm no knocking that that was the way to do it at that time. I and mean, it, it worked. But I think I, I realized at one point in my career how backwards that was because it wasn't about me. It's about getting to know that person and asking the right questions and asking them questions they hadn't been asked before in reality. You know, let's say you're trying to sell something. Say, let's say you're trying to open an account as a financial advisor and mom and dad come to your office and you make the presentation and they leave and get in the car. Do you think they talk about downside capture? <laughs> Or ask to allocate. What's the one question dad asked mom? Yeah. Do you what trust do you think? them? Do you like them? You trust that guy? Yeah. You like her? Yeah. And mom says, you know, I don't trust her that much. You can talk to you, you're not going to get the account. Mm-hmm. If I have to like you, trust you, and think, you, think your recommendations are spot on for me. Mm-hmm. I don't care if you use Dreyfus or Fidelity or E.F. Hutton or Merrill Lynch or the modern, the old. It's all the same. It's been the same forever. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad have never changed. Your grandfather, John, has the same goals for his children that you've got for your children. The same goals. You are your great, you're your great grandfather, and your grandchildren's grandchildren have the same goals you do. Mm-hmm. Americans are not trying to get rich; they're afraid of being poor. Yeah, you want to retire comfortably, mm-hmm. and and it's there's no need to overkill that. Yeah, I can make that happen. Are we good? That's well, all business is. It's just can I trust you? It's only clients only have one question: Can I trust you? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the only question in any business people have. Any business. Mm-hmm. Can I trust you? 
Let me ask you the other side of it. What what do you see or hear as the toughest resistance or just you know obstacle that advisors are hearing or facing? What are the, what are their clients asking them or saying that's been the toughest for them to deal with it? And what's your advice on how to deal with it? Well, there's a general answer to specific is specifically it's inflation today. This market's on a sugar high. As we speak on January 31st, February 1st, every today's date is, market's on a sugar high. Yeah. And it's starting to pull back and people are really worried, am I going to get caught in this? Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's the, uh, but the, 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 the broader answer is it's generational. Young people today are totally different than people my age. They don't want to come in the office. They want to work virtually. They want to meet in Starbucks. I think probably, I'm guessing this, but I think it's probably true. More than half of all new investors don't use a financial advisor. They use Robinhood or something similar. Mm-hmm and do so until they get burned and then seek professional advice. Mm-hmm. But skepticism, actually cynicism, I think is part of it. You know, stories on Wall Street are not good stories. Mm-hmm. I, I think I should wait till things get better. It's always, it's, 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 it's universal and eternal and timeless. Yeah, and how do you handle Here's that? a bigger what emotion than greed. Sorry? What, how do you handle that? What do you say to that? Hey, I need well, to, let me wait for things to settle. Because I've heard that. No, I, I, I ask people three questions. I, I say, I'm asking you a question. True or false, number one. New York Stock Exchange was founded in 1752. It's, it's old. Every time the market's gone down in the last 250 years, it's come back. Is that true or false? Oh, it's true. I say, well, every time it's come back, it's set a new high. True or false? Oh, that's true, too. Mm-hmm. Question number three. How do so many people lose money in the stock market? We know it's going to go down. We know it's going to come back. How do you lose? Well, the answer is, of course, spares a bigger emotion than greed. So I'm here. To, I'm not here to manage money. I'm here to manage your expectations. Mm-hmm. Let me, I, as long as you're my client, I'll never let go of your hand. Mm-hmm. And, and try to try to try to quell the fear, because mm-hmm. the fear is of the unknown. Mm-hmm. The other thing I do, John, I don't get, I don't want to get, I don't want to make this all about financial planning. But I have, a, I have, a, I tell a story. I say I want to look at my crystal ball. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the next ten years. Then you'll know. I say, well, first of all, the minute you give me money, this country's going to go off a fiscal cliff almost. And there's going to be urban unrest and there's going to be the longest war. And, you know, we're going to go into Syria and get in a war. And I'm going on and on and, and stock market crashes and impeachments. Well, the Dow went from 12,000 10 years ago to 36,000 today. And everything I just mentioned happened in the last 10 years. If you knew one thing, you wouldn't have invested 10 cents. Wow. So get your eye off this, you know, get your eye off the journey, get it on the destination. Yeah. Alan Abelson, the late great, up and down Wall Street was his column and Barron's. Said to invest money in the market and look at your prices every day is like walking up a hill with a yo-yo, watching the yo-yo, not the hill. Mm-hmm. The yo-yo being the headlines, the hill being the stock market. Yeah. Get your eye off the yo-yo, get it on the hill. So it's a matter of recency bias, which I'm sure you're familiar with that yep. term. Yeah. It's dispelling recency bias. Well, I, I I remember, and there's a great leadership lesson in this too. I remember one of the early tapes that I listened to was you telling a story about a client. Uh, handling a client resistance or, or setting expectations about what's going to happen. Hey, the market's going to drop. You're going to feel like throwing a brick through my window. And when you do, <laughs> tie a check to it because we're going to want to put more money into it. And I thought that was so brilliant because, one, it was funny. It was an anecdote. It was a story. But it was also a great way to set expectations with people that, hey, here's what's going to happen moving forward. And it is going to be tough. And there are going to be times you're going to want to you're going to be angry, you're going to be frustrated. And there's so much magic in that because when you talk about leadership, you know the best leaders I've seen are the ones that that set the expectations. Hey, you know what? You're going to go down this road. It is going to be hard. You're going to take on this new role and responsibility. It is going to be hard, and here's going to be the hardest part of it. 
and and you get them prepared for that. And then all of a sudden, when that happens, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, you know, Don, talk to me about this. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. When I see a, a, co- a, a company in trouble, any industry, it's a lack of vision from leadership. If the vision's strong, we'll make it. Mm-hmm. We can do this together. If there's no rudder, remember Alice in Wonderland, which road do I take? Yeah. Where do you want to end up? I don't care where I end up. It doesn't matter what road you take. Yeah, right. It has to be a vision, or as you said, set expectations. Yeah. That's a, to me, that's the one definition of leadership. Mm-hmm. Is creating a vision mm-hmm. and, and say, hold my hand, we're going to go. Here we go. Exactly. And it's interesting, you know, it's and it's a compelling vision. It's a powerful vision. It's clear. And everybody in the organization understands it and can articulate it. I mean, I go into businesses all the time and there's half the people that have no idea what the vision is. And some are spewing a vision that's different than what I know the CEO has shared. So it's I've been in UPS's, I mean, UPS is to me, FedEx's headquarters. I can tell you from my little visit there, everybody there, thinks one thing, absolutely positively overnight. It's all anybody thinks about. Herb Keller, when he was alive from Southwest Airlines, will we be the cheapest flight from Phoenix to LA? If adding a salad makes us more expensive, we're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. We're going to be the cheapest flight, period, end of story. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew that. Mm -hmm. It's also leaders that can't communicate because they can't overcome the curse of knowledge. So the message becomes ambiguous. It has Mm -hmm. to be, as you said, crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Ships here. Jack Welsh was like that. The ship is here. The ship is going there. Either get on or get off. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This is what we're going to do. Right. And people understanding what's in it for them. You know, hey, when we get to this destination, ultimately, here's what this looks like, not just for the company, but for everybody here. I think the best leaders are great at really bringing that vision to life. Like, okay, I got it. I see where my role in this position right here connects to the big picture yep. and and that's where they're rowing the boat that's the team everybody's yeah. job is to make their boss's job easier yeah your boss's job is to make their job easier yeah exactly uh well listen my friend this has been fantastic i know we're coming close to the end here and i want to get a couple of things in first of all uh there's a lot of people that want to find out you know what's going on with you and with the company and you've got a lot of stuff from speaking engagements to online programs to coaching all kinds of stuff that you do share with the group with the audience a little bit about that and how they can get additional info. Well, where I focus, I I, literally, John, I say everything you need to know to succeed that you weren't taught in training (laughs) because training is so product intensive. I never discuss product. I don't blink product knowledge is that I think of our success. 5% is what we know. 95% is who we are. Product knowledge, 5%. So I focus on the soft skills. I focus on sticking to the basics, marketing ourselves appropriately, forming long-term relationships, and mostly how to communicate and be a world-class communicator, how to overcome the curse of knowledge. I do it, as you said, I do it live. I do it virtually. I have two websites, donconnelly.com, D-O-N-C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y.com and donconnelly247, which is a learning center. Mm-hmm. So that's, I do a lot of webinars now because of the lockdown. Still do some, some uh, face-to-face meetings mm-hmm. like you and I did it a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it's just, it's very simple. What I do is very simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, we'll have all that info in the show notes for anybody who's listening that uh, wants to uh, see all the uh, info on Don and uh, links to where you can go to get more info. Uh, Don, leave us with one last bit of advice. You got people listening to this in all different countries, 66 different countries in all different levels. You got some people that are in finance. You got business people in healthcare and technology, you got high-end leaders, you got people that are just getting into leadership. What are some final words of wisdom? 
It's not what you know, it's who you are. If people are going to do, you know, when we form relationships, it's the same way. We want to be the people we like and trust. So focus on your likability. I don't know how much time I have to answer this. Do I have a minute to answer this question? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in a small town in New England 76 years ago. This is a less civil society. We all do business with people we like. So I know everyone on this, your audience is likable. Take it to a new level. Follow the golden rule. Pay it forward. Simple acts of kindness. The other is work on your trustworthiness. Never, ever, ever overpromise about anything. Do what you say you're going to do. Be honest. And you'll go viral. We all do business with people we like. And people come in to see you are not looking for information as much as they're looking for someone they can trust. So focus on your trustworthiness, your likability. The best thing. I love it. And just say to people, you and I together are better than you alone. Let's do this together. Excellent. Well, thank you, my friend. I hope we get you back here another time. We'll do uh, kind of like a part two, maybe even a part three. Added value. That's what we'll talk about next. I could chat with you for forever. So I appreciate <laughs> you joining the show. And uh, we'll have you again another time for sure. It's always a pleasure to see you, John. Thank you. You got it. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. As always, like, subscribe, share. I always appreciate your uh, suggestions on content as well as future guests. And, of course, go down below, give a five-star review, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader for suggestions or inquiries about having me at your next event or personal coaching. Reach me at john at loritogroup.com. Once again, that's J-O-H-N at L-A-U-R-I-T-O-G-R-O-U-P dot com. Thanks. Lead on.